The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is out with fresh guidance for how agencies can secure widely used business applications like email, office productivity tools. CISA hopes to help agencies develop better visibility into both the cyber threats and the security gaps lurking on those networks. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's Cyber Shared Services Manager, Chad Poland. Both of these products are part of the the Scuba project, which is the Secure Cloud Business Applications Project. Scuba is a a service within the CISA Cybersecurity Shared Service Office, CSSO. And it's really all about providing guidance, resources, and tools to help federal agencies secure their cloud business applications. And so what, what we mean by cloud business applications, it's SaaS environments, Microsoft 365 applications, Google Workspace, et cetera. You know, as a lot of people know, the FSEP consists of hundreds of agencies, including a number of small and micro agencies, and they really lack the cyber resources of the larger CFO Act agencies, right? So we're trying to provide actionable guidance that helps these organizations secure their environments. And one thing I, I really think is really unique and, and really awesome about these products is that although they were originally targeted and tailored for the federal environment, they're available for anyone to use. So organizations, state, local, uh, tribal, territory partners, private organizations can leverage these same products to secure their own entities. So within SCUBA, we have three main lines of effort. So the first one is the Extensible Visibility Reference Framework. That document and that work stream is all about visibility and telemetry. It's, It's a framework that allows organizations to assess themselves where they're blind and, and where they have visibility gaps, how they can shore up and provide better visibility coverage to make sure that they can track all the different telemetry coming in and out of their, their enterprises, right? And then the, the second work stream is cloud solutions architecture. First document out of there was the technical reference architecture, which I look as like the SCUBA foundational document. It really sets the stage for everything else that comes out of SCUBA. It talks about how to secure cloud environments in a very vendor agnostic approach. And it talks about a lot of the themes. We talk about visibility and logging, talks about ICAM, uh, talks about the secure configuration baselines, which is a good segue into the third work stream, which is the development of secure configuration baselines. One is for Microsoft 365 that we released for public comment out back in October of last year. Uh, and then the second one is Google Workspace, which we will be releasing later this summer. Got it. That's a great overview. And yeah, I mean, organizations across the world, federal agencies, businesses, all seem to use these same business applications, of course. So, you know, it's probably really important to have a common understanding of what a secure configuration is. You know, CISA has been testing out these concepts with agencies as they were finalizing these products. Can you kind of talk about how those tests went? what you learned, how they're going to continue to be used practically going forward. Sure. So, you know, first out the gate for the secure configuration baselines, which A, were number one, developed very heavily by what we learned through the technical reference architecture. We developed a number of internal test environments to test those configurations, do performance testing, do pen testing using our vulnerability management testers. And then we're also looking at developing visibility maps. So, With the EVRF being released, we're also releasing our first two workbooks, and one is for Microsoft and one's for for Google Workspace. So that's a pretty exciting thing that we're we're doing, and we're basically giving organizations the ability to now do their mapping internally on those to see where they have visibility gaps. So additionally for the baselines, which has been a multi-month process, is we're, we're actually piloting the Microsoft 365 baselines and the associated assessment tool called Scuba Gear with 15 federal agencies. 
So we have large agencies, we have small agencies, and we're working with them on their implementation of those baselines, their feedback on specific control statements, and their feedback on the tool and, and how it's being used. But also the, the nature of our tool being hosted on GitHub, we're getting a lot of industry partners looking at the tool, providing us valuable feedback. To date, I think we've had over 1,700 downloads, which is pretty phenomenal since it's not even a version one yet. Got it. And then since these documents were in draft for the past year, you've also been garnering feedback. Can you talk about what kind of feedback you got and how that played into the final products that are being released this week? We originally released them for public comment in April of 2022. And what we do with whenever we release documents like this is we really want to have a conversation with industry, with our federal agency partners, and get their feedback on uh, implementation, on things we may have missed. And you know, during those, those comment period, we received close to 500 comments um, on both of the EVRF and the TRA, which is, which is pretty phenomenal, showing the amount of engagement and importance to our partners that wanted to provide a better product for us going forward. And another really interesting thing is the comments, they were from private industry, from federal agencies, and also some state and local agencies also provided valuable feedback. So it's a, it's a whole breadth of, of people who you know participated and commented and provided valuable feedback for these. And so both of these documents are written in plain English. I think a lot of folks could really understand what they are. At the same time, they're, you know, not short. What are some of the main highlights or takeaways, the main, you know, considerations or standards or what have you that you'd want folks to be looking for in both of these documents and how they should be configuring these widely used applications? A, thank you on noticing the, the plain language writing of the documents. I, I think it, you know we, we go to the great pains to make sure that the guidance and resources um, that we produce can be implementable. And that means that anyone who reads them can understand it and kind of internalize and, and follow the instructions. So I'm glad we hit the mark there. One of the big themes that came out of the, the TRA in, in the comments and one of the things we really spent a lot of time rewriting is the TRA's alignment with zero trust principles. And also knowing that, you know, the TRA doesn't supersede any existing federal regulation or guidance. It actually aligns very nicely to OMB memo 2209 uh, and also our CISA zero trust maturity model that we just released 2.0. But, you know, like mirroring and making sure that alignment is very clear was very important when we revised the TRA. Uh, So, you know, that one for that. And then for EVRF, there was a lot of comments around uh, use cases. You know, how is CISA going to use EVRF? How can organizations integrate this new framework into their own work streams? So we took a lot of effort to really articulate that. And so, A, number one, that organizations know how CISA is going to use it and how it maps to our operational visibility and how it maps to M2131 and how organizations can use it so they can figure out their gaps Invisibility. But the cool thing I'll mention for EVRF is that we're also developing a tool that will be available here shortly in the next couple of months that will allow agencies to, in a more automated fashion, develop these visibility heat maps. And so they can quickly and easier, you know, do their assessments and see where their where their gaps are. And then one concrete consideration that I wanted to ask about here is the importance of logs, I think was really highlighted in the aftermath of the SolarWinds incident from a couple of years ago. And I'm just wondering if both of these documents really emphasize the importance of logging for federal agencies and how they should be doing that within these environments. Yeah, I mean, 
And you, you hit it right on the head is, is logging is instrumental to knowing, you know, when an adversary is in the environment and after they get out, how they got in and where they move around. And you look at all the themes through all of our documents, not just the TRA, which has a, a big chunk on logging, telemetry, and visibility. You have EVRF, which is all about giving organizations a tool so they can find out where they're blind. You know, a nice analogy that we use in the EVRF document is kind of that 2D overlay of like, say, a house with a fence. And if you put a camera in one corner, you can see XYZ. And then if you double that coverage with another camera, you increase your visibility coverage. And so that's a really useful analogy for organizations to understand that different types of sensors placed in different parts of the environment are going to complement you and give you better coverage. And then you know, visibility is, is also in telemetry and logging is very part and parcel to the security configuration baselines and making sure that, you know, log types are recorded and eventually, you know, can be stored or are transmitted appropriately. Chad Poland, Cyber Shared Services Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to 
this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership 
that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.